If you think of leadership as a calling, there are some people who seem to follow that calling their entire lives. Natural leaders. But life is strange. We sometimes find ourselves in situations we've never anticipated. Circumstances that are beyond our imagination or control, where things spiral out of their natural orbit. When the world has been turned upside down like this, people look for some sort of certainty. They need to create a sense of order out of chaos. What they're looking for is leadership. At that moment, there's an opportunity for anyone who would care to take the reins, a chance to step up, provide a sense of order, confidence, and calm that will put others at ease. A chance to become a leader. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. Thank you for considering this show worthy of your time. It's my hope that we provide the quality of conversation that keeps you coming back each episode. We do these shows live on Twitter Spaces and then package them up as a podcast for listening later. The bonus of listening live is, of course, that you have a chance to jump in the conversation and ask questions yourself. Feel free to listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and follow me at Scott Monty on Twitter. And of course, subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I regularly write about leadership and communication at TimelessTimely.com. This week, we're speaking with Jim Rafferty about accidental leadership. Jim Rafferty didn't always picture himself as a leader. As a marketing executive by day, he was part of a team pulling in the same direction. But then, an unimaginable tragedy suddenly and expectedly placed Jim Rafferty in a demanding volunteer leadership role as scoutmaster of a local Boy Scout troop. The story of how that shattered organization picked up the pieces forms the basis of his book, Leader by Accident. 
Jim helped Troop 328 not only survive, but thrive in the aftermath of that tragedy, bestowing upon these boys wisdom each week that explored the meaning of the scout's attributes. You know them. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Essentially, characteristics of leaders. A few years after that upheaval, Jim found himself suddenly let go from the job he'd held for more than two decades. At that moment, Jim came to realize that the challenges and lessons he'd encountered as a scout leader had applications far beyond scouting. He used those experiences to fuel a successful journey into entrepreneurship. As a scoutmaster, Jim imparted bite-sized chunks of inspiration every week and life advice to the young men of his troop. And now, he's transformed those lessons into life advice for business leaders. Jim, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me. Excellent. So um, I'm fascinated by your book, Leaders by Accident. And m my initial question is, did you ever picture yourself as a leader when you were growing up? I, you know, the, the events that kick off the book really were not my first time in a leadership position. I've been, you know, sort of community school stuff, you know, president of band or whatever, president of my college fraternity or whatever. I, I, I've said to a couple of the Boy Scouts I had that, you know, this is going to come to you because you're tall and you have a deep voice. And, you know, so, sometimes it works that way. So the, the part that was really out of my comfort zone for me in terms of stepping into the the scoutmaster role that really is the, the the germ of the book, so to speak, is, uh, you know, that I really had no experience in that area. And you, you were involved in scouting up until that point. I mean, this is a, this was a tragic event that happened to the community, but certainly at a more micro level to the troop, you and your son were involved, but in, in what capacity were you involved at that point? I was really just a dad with a son in the Boy Scout troop um, who, you know, would try to, I would try to go along and help out on the camping trip when I could because we're, there was always a need for chaperones and drivers and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but I really had no, I had been a Boy Scout myself for maybe a couple of weeks as a kid. I really didn't like it. Uh, I really wasn't any kind of a camper or outdoors person or anything. And then all of a sudden, and I mean, the, the story is that our, Scoutmaster and his wife and their two younger sons were all shot to death by their oldest son, who was then 15. So, I mean, you can just imagine the way that rippled through the community because mom and dad were everywhere, not only scouts, but PTA and youth sports and everywhere you went, they were there. And really my, my little part of it in the context of all that is hardly worth mentioning, but it, it changed things for me because a couple of days later, I was the new scoutmaster of the troop that we really didn't know whether the troop would survive or not, uh, you know, and despite having like zero experience at the job. So it, it was a, an interesting time, but it was a time that really led to a lot of personal growth and then more significant professional things a little bit down the road. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you bring out in the book is how, how the troop, the other parents, the other scout masters or assistant scout ma masters, as well as the scouts themselves kind of looked to you as well he's our guy 
Like he's the guy we're going with, and all signs pointed to you. What what do you attribute that to? I I, I wish I knew. You know, I, at that first meeting, which literally was the day after the news broke, we had grief counselors, and I say we, I had nothing to do with it. the people who were in charge had grief counselors there for the boys. And I mean, you can just begin to imagine the emotion of that night. And at the end of that meeting, one of the scouts opened up a spot in the circle and he said, Mr. Rafferty, do you want to say anything? And I stepped into the circle and I don't know where the words came from, but I guess I was, you know, sort of semi-inspiring. And and I think that sort of sealed the deal. And the next night I became the new scoutmaster. Is it something you were ever seeking to do? No. So they, they had called the night before and said, you know, we need to choose a new scoutmaster this week and your name is on the list. And I think I actually, I mean, it was not a funny time in any way, shape or form, but I think I actually kind of chuckled and said, I'm sure you're mistaken because you don't, you don't want me to do this. But honestly, you know, the troop succeeded. The troop thrived, not because of me, but I think because about my very first official act as a leader was to reach out to all the parents and say, look, you're going to have to step up. We're all going to have to step up and do more. And a lot of people did. And because they did that, I could learn on the job and sort of learn how to be a scoutmaster. And I wound up doing that for five years, and it was very much life-changing. Wow. Um, well, that to me, that's a really interesting observation because we look at leaders and, and leadership as, almost as, a, in some ways, a solitary exercise. Like there is one person at the pinnacle, at the top of the pyramid, and yet leadership is anything but a solitary experience. You know, in the book, you talk about needing solitude and reflection time, that being really important in the evolution of a leader. But ultimately, being a leader is really about being surrounded by the right people. It absolutely is. Yeah, that, that team made all the difference. And, you know, when we talk about being a leader, I, I really think we're all leaders. I mean, I mentioned this in a keynote I did a couple of months ago, you know, like you're, I'm talking about leadership and you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not me. And I don't care if you run an organization with 200 employees, if you're the new salesperson who started last month. At somewhere in your life, at some time, someone is looking to you for leadership, whether it's your kids, your spouse, your aging parent, your coworkers who are at the same level as you. Leadership doesn't mean being the boss necessarily. Yeah, that, and that is a really, really important uh, distinction there that, you know, as we say in our intro here, it's about inspiring others to dream more, do more, and become more than they I already love that are. Quote. Yeah. And, you know, I initially thought that was from John Quincy Adams, and then I heard it was from John Adams. Well, in fact, it was, it was attributed to them later. You know, who actually, uh, who used this is Dolly Parton. That's beautiful. She's, she's a wonderful, wonderful person uh, from ever, everything I've ever heard about her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's somebody who just in keep, keeps inspiring people uh, in the present day, just taking on so much positivity and, um, you know, helping people find a direction. And, you know, as a, as a scout master, as a scout leader, I mean, you're literally and figuratively trying to help these boys find direction, whether it's out in the wilderness, uh, whether it's at a meeting or whether it's just in uh, life in general. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of kind of being a, a moral compass as a, as a leader? Right. So one of the, probably the prime example of that for me, there's a component of the scouting program called the Scoutmaster Minute, which is essentially a little mini homily delivered by the Scoutmaster at the end of each weekly meeting. 
The boys form a circle, we go over any final announcements, that kind of thing. And then the Scoutmaster delivers a little message designed to send them out the door with a positive, motivational, inspirational thought. And when I accepted the Scoutmaster job, I thought, well, I, I may not know three ways to start a fire without matches, but I can give a little speech, I think. And I worked hard on those. And it was very gratifying to me that a number of our guys in reflecting on their scouting careers at their Eagle Scout ceremonies mentioned those Scoutmaster minutes as a, a source of inspiration. So I kept an archive of those and I use those throughout the book, Leader by Accident, to sort of tee up the next chapter and take what I was trying to teach to the scouts and translate it for you and me and people trying to be leaders in our adult life. And and this is a part of the book that I absolutely love because it's it's formulaic. So, you know, you, you get into the rhythm of it. You come to expect it. And to me, that's a lot of leadership is communication, is constantly reminding people, kind of being on this wheel. You may get tired of it yourself at times. You even mentioned that you recycled one of your uh, Scoutmaster minutes at one point. Um, and the reaction that you got from the Scouts was fantastic. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? It's true. Towards the end of my uh, career as Scoutmaster, my, my first year as an entrepreneur overlapped my last year as a Scoutmaster, so it was a busy time. And I just didn't have time one week to prepare a new Scoutmaster minute. So I dug deep into the archives for one that had been you know, four, four and a half years before that I had delivered. And we circled up and I delivered the opening line. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of my older Scouts. He nods and he sort of smiles to himself and he says, I remember this one. And boy, that was a gratifying moment to know that you'd made an impression. And and that's been really one of the interesting things about the book for me so far, because, you know, in, in writing it, producing it, I, I sort of had my, my eye and my thought on business and on business leaders and all. But just in terms of parenting, which is a, a tougher and tougher job these days, even before the pandemic, right? I've had so much feedback from parents about those Scoutmaster Minutes, these messages that were designed for 11 to 17-year-old young men and, you know, and how much they have met, how much they've helped to, to be another positive voice in a, in a young person's ear at a time when they really, really need it. Yeah, and as a father of a couple of teens myself, um, we get the eye rolls all the time. We, we get oh, them yeah. ignoring us all the time. And a, a teenager like a, well, let's say disinterested employee, when you know you've got their attention, when you see them engaging around something, it's like, yes, yes, more of that, please. It is. And it's getting, you know, as I said, harder and harder, you know, and it's a combination of, just the world we live in. And I mean, this is horrifying to me, but somebody in my business peer group just a couple of weeks ago reported that his lady friend, her 10 year old son came to her and asked her about a very specific pornographic website, you know, a 10 year old, you know, and we, we have so little control over what our kids are seeing and doing. And the more positive voices we can put in their ear. And that's one of the reasons I'm still a big proponent of the scouting program. Uh, you know, the, the more they're hearing the things we want them to hear from people other than us, because, you know, they tune us out, as you say, uh, the, the better we are. Are you still involved with the Scouts? No, no, I'm not. I, st I stepped aside when uh, I our son got his Eagle uh, Award in 2013, 2012. Anyway, I, I stayed around for a year after that to sort of ensure a good transition and make sure they have good people in the right spots and we're, we're good to go without me. Yeah. But then, no, then I stepped aside because as I said, it was still getting my 
consulting business off the ground and it was just a little too much at that point. Yeah, understandable. So I, I didn't want to assume you aged out. Um, yeah. <laughs> so hey, there, there are a lot of people who stay for decades after their kids are done and God bless them because they keep the, the program going. I just was not able to do that really. Yeah. Well, and to me, this is the interesting part because you, you realized along the way, and I want to talk about your work journey here. Um, you realized along the way that the lessons that you were inspiring these boys with were also lessons that you could take on your own as a budding entrepreneur, uh, as a leader in various capacities, and, and you applied those to the business world. And that, that's where I think this book really shines is taking, you know, kind of the everyday, parental scout guide thing and translating it to a guide for all of us. So can, can you set up for a little bit for us where you were in your career and, and what happened in this transition that made you consider entrepreneurship? Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, where, where it comes from and really the reason there's a book is not just because I became a scoutmaster under pretty awful circumstances. That in itself is a nice little story. But as I'm fond of saying, you know, the scoutmaster doesn't exactly carry the nuclear football or anything. You know, it's, it's a demanding volunteer job, but just that. Uh, what, what really made it relevant for me and made me think there was a story worth telling was a few years later when I lost the job I'd had for almost 21 years as the, the marketing and sales manager for a fairly sizable home improvement company here in Boston. And it had honestly never occurred to me to do anything other than have a job and have somebody write me a paycheck and provide my health care and all the things that go along with that. And the problem was there didn't seem to be a whole ton of demand at that point for a 51-year-old self-taught marketer. So I wound up hanging out my own shingle as a marketing consultant, and that's now nine and a half years ago, I guess. And... <laughs> That was the probably even more life changing than the scoutmaster thing because I, I you know we we can measure success in any number of ways whether it's the the money in the bank account whether it's doing work you love or having schedule flexibility and freedom to do what you want and and what I've done for this last almost decade really checks all the boxes and the point to be made in all of that is that really those experiences as scoutmaster that first act of stepping out of my comfort zone and taking on this volunteer role that I was not qualified for and stretching myself really is what gave me the, you know, the chutzpah to, to think, well, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can be a consultant that I can go and hang out my own shingle and survive doing it. Yeah. And it, it, like you say, the comfort zone, that was something you, you stepped out of for the scouting and, and you did also, again, we're, we're, we're in a sense pushed uh, into some of these um, non-comfort zones, things that we wouldn't have considered on our own, and you had a um, you had a leader that took over your old company, um, you know, after decades of family ownership, and in comes a very different kind of leader. Um, and you know, we were talking before about uh, the the Scoutmaster Minute. You had prepared a speech for your uh, your colleagues at this uh, home improvement company where you talked about um, the, the Stockdale paradox, which I love. I've, right. I've, I've, that's, right. a, that's a fantastic concept. And the, the notion here, of course, is uh, accept the reality, right, and readjust your focus based on the current reality you're in, not simply uh, going for optimism or hope. And this leader came in and completely, well, basically trashed your presentation with one final comment at the end. Can you, can, can you describe that without too much bitterness and angst? 
Right. So I was trying very hard to be a good company soldier. And in fairness, the company needed change. It had been owned by the same fellow for a long time and not much investment had happened. And we were sort of hidebound in some old ways of doing things. So I, I need to say that up front. We had a very experienced sales team and they were not used to being told to do things a different way. And so this was my little, you know, come to Jesus meeting with them where I was going to talk about the Stockdale paradox. And I prepared, man, I had this memorized back and forth and I delivered it. And I really felt like I could see it sinking in and they're going, yeah, okay, now I, yes. All right. So things do have to change and I need to accept that reality and move on and so. And then, yeah, the um, owner of the company then just made a completely unrelated comment about their work schedules that did not need to be said then and uh, the room erupted and people threatened to quit and anything I had said maybe, you know, may as well not have happened. Uh, it was a very frustrating moment. Yeah. And so how do, how do you deal with something like that? I mean, part of leadership is accepting that not everything is in your control. You know, as, as yeah. much as you're quote unquote in charge, there are things that are outside the bounds of your control. So how do you, how, how did you react then and how might you react differently now based on the, the scouting tenets that you've uh, reflected on? I don't know that I would react any differently now. What I did then was I was angry, but in an under control way. Uh, after we were done, I went into the owner's office and told him exactly what I thought, how hard I had worked on that, and that he had just undone any good I might have done. And I got some sort of snarky remark about my needing a hug. And, you know, and two months later, I was gone. So, you know, I mean, I could have seen the writing on the wall at that point. But he, you know, he truly didn't care. I, I don't know what I could have done differently in that situation. I don't think I could have. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's a lesson. I mean, you know, nobody bats a thousand as a leader, right? So we we have to understand and and hopefully learn. And and one of the points I make in that the the other issue during that year that I worked with this new owner was the obsession with consultants. You know, and time and again, I would suggest a certain way to do of doing things and be ignored or ridiculed, and then a consultant would come in and say the exact same thing, and it became gospel. You know. But the silver lining in all that was I really paid attention to how these consultants conducted themselves. And a year later, plus, when it was time to hang up my own shingle, I felt like I had a little leg up. And I, I, you know, I understood what the market would bear in terms of pricing. I understood the value in doing the little things like not ignoring the entire staff when you come into the building as the consultant, you know, and then sort of, you know, engaging the rest of the team and, and all of that. And I think, you know, the, the silver lining in all that for me was that, I was paying attention as all that misery was going on in my life. Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, that, that notion of paying attention to the small things, uh, that comes from somebody we, we both admire and someone who was actually a guest on the program last season, Tom Peters talks, oh, yeah. talks about how just doing those little things every single day, those, those build up goodwill, those build up a, a reputation and a culture. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of the little things? Sure. Yeah. One, one of the probably three main themes of leader by accident is the language that we use as leaders and, and how much it matters. And I, I illustrate that with a few stories. And one of them, just to tell the real short story, one of my scouts and I were talking about, he was a junior in high school at the time, and I was asking him about college majors and where he was thinking of going and that kind of thing. And he said, Mr. Rafferty, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you like to do? What interests you? And we chatted a little more, and I promptly forgot the conversation never happened. 
And about a year and a half later, he wrote me a thank you note when he became an Eagle Scout and thanked me for my leadership and all that. But he recalled that conversation that I had forgotten. And he said that was the first time in his life that anyone had ever asked him what he wanted to do with his own life, which was jaw-dropping to me. So, you know, what I thought was a throwaway question, you know, what do you like to do, a little small talk, turned out to have a much bigger impact. And I think as leaders, we need to be constantly aware of that, especially in this age where so much of our communication happens by typing, right? We're, we're texting, we're IMing, we're emailing, and it's very easy to have our tone and our intent lost in that. And I, um, the, the Tom Peters says, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I, I quote an excerpt from one of his books in there where he says essentially the same thing that, you know, co- about around company culture, company culture. And I don't have it in front of me, so this will be paraphrased, but company culture is the remarks the boss makes to the receptionist when she walks in the door in the morning. Company culture is the brief interactions with the employees between the front door and the boss's office. Company culture is the tone and the quality of the emails that the boss sends in the first 15 minutes of the workday. You know, the language we use has such an impact on culture. And I don't know how much we realize that and, you know, how much time and money and effort we spend chasing company culture. And especially now in the great resignation, right, employee engagement. And sometimes it comes down to the language we use and, and you know, things we did not intend to be interpreted in the way that they are interpreted. Yeah. And What's interesting, too, is when, when you put that against the, the example we just talked about before, um, one phrase or one uh, behavior in the completely opposite direction can basically destroy all of that credibility, destroy that trust that you've gained with your employees if you don't act consistently. And and this is why, you know, again, you come back to your Scoutmaster Minutes, uh, this this method of always opening a meeting with the Scoutmaster Minute, it becomes rote. It becomes part of the, the lore, part of, part of the reason everybody shows up every week, right? They get something out of it. Yeah, you'd like to think so, right? And, and it really is as simple as a few words. And the, the other thing I always point to in, from my time as Scoutmaster, and this is great advice, I think, especially in the age of remote work, was I made every effort to know the young men of the troop beyond what they did as Boy Scouts. In other words, to know what they did when they weren't there, what instrument they played, what sport they played. And if they made the lacrosse team or if they made the all-county band, we would celebrate that as a group. I would keep their birthdays on a calendar. And every week, right before that Scoutmaster Minute, we'd give a shout-out to whoever had a birthday coming that week. You know, Little stuff like that, you know, that sort of goes back to the leadership the old maxim of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? That, and that's such a challenge right now, I think, as we try to lead in a business setting, because all of a sudden we're looking at each other across a computer screen and not across a desk and we're losing our nonverbal cues. And we know that our employees are struggling because they're trying to homeschool their kids or, you know, whatever. And that's all part of the reason we're seeing this mass exodus from work. So leaders have to do more and find different and better ways of doing it. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that is uh, concurrent is, yes, we're spending time on screens, on Zoom calls. We've also spent the last decade on Instagram and, and various social media platforms where life is a highlight reel. Life looks rosy to everyone on the outside. And we're trying to keep up, just as you said, with, with family commitments, uh, elder care, child care, you name it. Um, and yet, 
there seems to be a move now toward encouraging leaders to embrace vulnerability, right? to show vulnerability on their own. Even as your uh, he who shall not be named said that you, you need a hug. Well, of course, everybody needs a hug every once in a while. And if he wasn't the kind of leader who could have supported you in that moment, then leadership was really lost on him. So I'm, I'm curious how you think vulnerability comes into play here within the realm of leadership. I think a huge part of leadership is being willing to admit that you don't know what you don't know. You know, sometimes we, we get into that role and, you know, we would see this play out over and over again with scouts because they're 12, 13 years old and they get they get promoted to patrol leader or something. And they interpret that to mean, well, now I'm in charge of all you peons and you better listen to what I say and, and do what I say. And they they pretty quickly learn that it doesn't work and they come back in tears because they're being ignored or ridiculed or, or whatever, you know. And I think the corollary to that for adults is really just what you said. You know, we, we need to be able to say, hey, I don't have the answers, to say, hey, we're doing this together. What are your ideas? You know, how can I help you succeed now that you've got two kids at home trying to learn? What can we do to make this all work for you? What, whatever it is, but we've got to be willing to drop that uh, that armor, that facade that has us as this, you know, like you said at the very beginning, you know, the top of the pyramid, you know, unapproachable, this unscalable mountain. That's, I don't think that kind of leadership works right now, if it ever did. Yeah, it's a good point. It really is. Um, almost hand in hand with vulnerability kind of comes a, a flip side or maybe maybe a different side of the triangle, if you will. And I, I do need to work on my geometry, I think. Um, <laughs> gratitude. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about gratitude and, and the three things exercise that you um, mentioned in the book? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's a great circle back because that Scoutmaster Minute we talked about that you know, was, came back four years later was about that. It was about gratitude. And when I, you know, gave a breakfast speech a couple of months ago, I, I, I told that story and gave the Scoutmaster Minute about gratitude and all that. And I said, here's what I want to point out to you. That was first delivered in 2008 about the importance of developing a habit of gratitude. In other words, it was delivered long before we arrived at this social media climate that you just referenced where we're being, you know, shouted down and ridiculed and, you know, this one's stupid and this one's a snowflake and, you know, that. And I think it's not only more important than ever that we make that effort to cultivate a sense of gratitude, but it, it's a little harder than it used to be because we are just bombarded with negativity in ways that we never have been. I don't know how much we've realized that. It's a little bit like the, you know, the frog in the pot of water. It's been a gradual thing. And I don't know if we collectively realize how, bad it's gotten. But to, to the habit that you referenced really is very simple. And I know gratitude journals work great for some people. I, I have not done that. My Mine is much simpler. Every night, the last thing I do before I close my eyes is I come up with three things that happened that day that I'm grateful for. And some days it's hard to come up with three things. And other days it's hard to come up with, it's hard to decide which three things, which is nice, but is also a very useful exercise in, in what's really important to us. So that's been very, very helpful for me. And, uh, you know, if you ask my wife, she will tell you, no, I'm not happy all the time. But, 
you know, I think I'm more positive than I used to be. And I think it's made a difference. And I started doing that right around the time I became an entrepreneur. And, and I really feel like it's made a difference. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneur really requires a little bit of that uplifting uh, optimism from time to time. And it doesn't need to be rosy cheeked optimism, but we do need to look for those, those glimmers of hope uh, around yeah. the corner. Well, and especially if you're a solo entrepreneur, because nobody else is going to do it for you. Right? That's right. Well, you you talked a little bit about um, getting out of your own zone as a solopreneur. You know, I'm a solopreneur right. as well. So, uh, and right. I have a, a group of people, a collective that I'm associated with. Can you talk a little bit about your method for keeping yourself in touch with others as you uh, continue on this solo leadership journey? Yep, sure. Again, by almost sheer coincidence, one of the first things I did when I became an entrepreneur was to join a monthly business peer group where once a month, eight to 12 people sit around a conference room table or these days partly by Zoom and we solve each other's problems, you know, and uh, we know each other very well personally and professionally and you get really unvarnished advice from the group. So from, from where I sit, if you're a solo entrepreneur, it sort of replaces that office tribe that you don't have anymore. It's, it's very useful to get some unbiased feedback from people who have different perspectives than you do. And even if you're not, if you work in a larger company, if you're a leader of a, you know, a larger organization, it sort of gets you outside your own echo chamber of people telling you what you want to hear and telling you instead what you need to hear. And that's, that's been a huge part. Probably the best single thing I've done as an entrepreneur was to, to join that group. I still participate. And now I also run, uh, facilitate one of those groups also, which is uh, also very enlightening on a regular basis. I'll bet. Do you, do you remember any of those things that you didn't want to hear, but that you needed to hear anything that stands out? You know, for a guy, <laughs> For a guy who is a marketer and, you know, a, uh, a speaker and the author of a book and all, I'm, I'm really not terribly strong at self-promotion. And sometimes uh, my, my cage needs to be rattled a little bit and people need to say, you know, you need to get out there and tell people about this and do this. And the other thing is that, you know, the, the book, Leader by Accident, that was a process of really a few years putting that together, not that I wrote all that time, but I'd write a little bit and step away for a few months and then come back and rewrite a little bit, and write a little bit more, you know, and all that. And more than anything, that group that I belong to really held me accountable for that would regularly ask, you know, come on, what's going on with the book? Where's the finish line? You've been talking about this for three years. When's it going to be done? And because, you know, you know, you would, I, I would still be sitting here going, Oh, that could be a little better. And I'd rewrite that, you know, and at some point you just have to draw a line and say, we're done here at the book. I feel your pain, (laughs) figuratively and literally. I I really do. Um, You know, one one of the the gems that I found in the book was um, it it wasn't wasn't necessarily this professional networking group, but it was your neighborhood networking group, in particular your your neighbor Dick. Oh, he's such a good guy. yeah, Yeah, and he was he was a sales guy. He was the kind of guy who was constantly optimistic but not it didn't seem like it was in an unrealistic way but his his own brand of leadership affected those around him and i'm i'm curious to understand where you found inspiration from dick and and just what kind of a guy he was he was yeah oh gosh i miss him every day he's been gone for over 2 years now and uh 
yeah, just uh, was was such a good guy. And, and as I, I say in what I put in the book, the first time you met him, you thought, wow, there goes the world's greatest salesperson because he just, you know, lit up a room and, you know, was Mr. Happy to see you and all of that. And it took a little longer to figure out that unlike so many people like that, it was not an act. It was really in his DNA. And yeah, he lit up a room, but he made sure that you knew you were the most important one in the room. And he was also very funny about it. Just circling back to our discussion about teenagers, you know, when we first moved in, his one of his stock lines was, oh, I have a wife and two teenage daughters. I'm, I'm the dumbest SOB on the planet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but he was such a good guy and he led by... You know, again, in the book, I mentioned, if you asked him, hey, how are you? He'd say, best damn day of my life. You know, and it would always it was always good for a laugh and all. But once in a while, somebody would say, well, why is that? And he'd say, well, because you cared enough to ask. And that really is who he was. He was just such a good guy and just couldn't do enough for you, whoever you were. Gifted salesperson who knew your dog's name and your wife's birthday, you know, uh, but it went so much deeper than that. Very, very blessed to have been his neighbor for really almost a couple of decades. Yeah. And, and to me, that's, that's the beauty of this is we as leaders can get inspiration from anywhere if we're paying attention. Could be our neighbor, could be something we read in a book or online, could be at a scout meeting. Um, and, and it's, it's really about being open to receiving this information and paying attention. I wonder if you yeah, talk a little bit about the, the need for attention. Yeah, it is. And we've been, as, as I said, just blessed with not just Dick, but all our neighbors, really. We live in this wonderful little community here just north of Baltimore. And that has cut the other way, too, where, you know, you know well, so I have a book coming out, right? Well, the book came out in October, but last year I had the first few copies, some author copies, and I started to give them to friends and neighbors and relatives and things like that. And two neighbors came back to me and one said she read it and then went out and went after the biggest contract ever in her work career and got it. And she says, so now I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone again and actually fulfill the contract, but that's good. And the other one is a college professor who had a handful of ideas about, you know, starting some new leadership programs where she is. And instead of going through channels, she emailed the president of the university, wound up having lunch in the president's office the next day and walked away from that meeting with like five or six different possibilities. And this has only been about a month, month and a half. So which ones will play out? I don't know, but including potentially a new role for herself. So, you know, that, that kind of interaction, you know, to have these people living within easy walking distance who, who have been able to interact over the book like that has been hugely supportive for me as, as a new author. That's so rewarding. I mean, as, as an author, as a leader, I mean, you name it. That's great. I, I was a, a little worried you were going to say there that some neighbors contacted you as wondering why they weren't featured in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably some of that, too. <laughs> it's funny, you know, because let, let's face it, we've all heard people tell us you need to get out of your comfort zone. I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I invented this, you know, but I always come back to the, uh, if you ever heard the Zig Ziglar story where somebody said to Zig, uh, you know, the trouble Zig with this sales training of yours is it doesn't last. And Zig said, well, neither does showering. That's why we recommend doing it daily. Right. And that's the, the feedback I've gotten on the book is not, you know, wow, this is the most original thing I've ever seen because you've been told to get out of your comfort zone before you heard of me. Right. But the feedback I've gotten is this is really what I needed to hear right now. And that has been immensely gratifying. 
That is that is wonderful. And uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, I write a newsletter called Timeless and Timely. And that's the same concept, taking these time-honored lessons that maybe we've forgotten about and reapplying them to what we need every single day. Jim, I wondered if we might close with you reading an excerpt from the book. All right. The Final Scoutmaster Minute. The Final Scoutmaster Minute isn't for the scouts. It's for you. And it's more than a minute, so sue me. I'll admit to being an old soul, even in comparison to my actual age. I was the youngest of four kids by several years, and both my parents were born just as the Great Depression began. Those lean times covered the way they lived their lives and the way they raised us. We never took a dollar for granted, and I still don't. The point is that I have a somewhat different worldview, I think, than even others my own age. In fact, I've always carried myself in such a way that people thought I was older. This is great when you're 19 and you want a beer, but the charm wears off once you enter middle age. All that background is intended to offer a little street cred when I say this. I believe that we can't yet fully comprehend the the technological changes we've lived through and their impact on us as human beings. We are collectively the frog in the pot of water. The heat has been turned up in the form of technology raining down on us, and we don't realize we're about to be boiled. I don't dismiss at all the marvels of technology, that we can hold a device in one hand that has more processing power than our desktop computers did in the 1990s, and also offers turn-by-turn directions, great photos, HD video, and, well, nearly any other trick we want to do. That's nothing short of miraculous. The fact that we use all that handheld magic to send each other smiling piles of poo is nothing short of disturbing. Maybe you, like me, have trouble discerning whether a given commercial is for a movie or a video game because the graphics have gotten that good. And the disruption of entire industries by the likes of Uber, Netflix, and Airbnb has been fascinating to live through. Just the sheer barrage of information, not only ads, but texts and emails and alerts, and the hundred other things your phone nags you about each and every day, is unprecedented. What cost does all this convenience and connectedness carry? Beyond the funhouse mirror, highlight real view we get of other people's lives on social media, leaving us always trying to measure up, what's becoming of our social skills and our attention spans? Well before the pandemic, my wife and I went with friends to have dinner at a little Italian restaurant in Baltimore's Federal Hill neighborhood. The place is just a small storefront with maybe 15 tables, and when we arrived early on a Sunday evening, exactly none of them had people at them. We had a lovely dinner, taking our time and chatting. We were there for perhaps two hours. Here's what we noticed. In that two-hour span, one other couple came in, had a salad or something quick, and left. All the other tables remained empty, but approximately 25 drivers for DoorDash, Uber Eats, etc. came through to pick up carry-out orders. It was like a parade going past our table, and we saw some of the same drivers two and three times. There's nothing wrong with ordering in, of course, but the contrast was striking. 25 people, or couples, chose not to interact with other humans that evening and a restaurant that a year before would have been filled with convivial chatter and all the ambiance of a library, thanks to the combination of mobile apps for carryout food and, probably, Netflix. The more connected we get, the less connected we are. So, Jim, this this idea of connectedness, I mean, we're, we're, we have the tools to stay connected, and yet these very tools are the things that are driving us apart. And I, the the very final line of your book is, go take a hike. <laughs> and it's not meant in a dismissive way. It, it's meant to get away from technology. So 
What are some of your, your top recommendations for people who are just consumed with technology as they're trying to stay connected? Just that. I mean, and it's gotten worse, right, with the pandemic because, you know, to a greater sense, our electronic lifelines are really all we've had. They've even even more than before replaced human interaction. We were already getting to be pretty bad at actually, you know, talking to each other on the phone or in person as opposed to sending a text or an IM or something. And now, you know, well, we have to stay apart. So it's been ramped up even more. My my sense is, you know, there's the solitary part and the not solitary part, but for me, getting out and taking a hike through the woods, and I can do that within five minutes of my house, just, you know, lets me think and plan and, you know, sort of scheme on a different level than I can do otherwise. I think it's just good for the soul. It's good for the mind. It's good for everything. And I think the other part of that, whether you're hiking or not, I mean, you know, within whatever the CDC says this week, we need to find ways to be together and to talk to each other and, you know, to be in person because we're losing that and that worries me no end. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, um, the old Latin phrase, solvitur ambulando means it is solved by walking. And, um, so true. Yeah. you know, in some cases, uh, with, with teenage boys, we, we have, uh, it is solved by driving where they're in yeah. the passenger seat. They don't have to be looking right at me. And I find that frees them up to talk about all kinds of things as we have, uh, windshield time together. Yes. Yeah, that helps a lot. It's, it does. As does, uh, I mentioned in the book, being around the campfire with the scouts. Uh, that, that was really neat for me, uh, where our son was concerned because after a while they sort of forget you're there watching, you know, and it's like observing animals in their natural habitat. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> That's great. Well, Jim, any final thoughts as we wrap up here? I'd really appreciate the chance to talk about all this. You know, just super questions and a wonderful job on the interview. I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, The book is called Leader by Accident. Uh, More information at leaderbyaccident.com, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, really any place online that you buy books or for your Kindle or Nook or however you want to read it. That's great. Well, we will be sure to check it out, and those links will be in the show notes. Jim Rafferty, thank you for your timeless leadership. Thanks so much, Captain. Maybe you don't consider yourself a leader, but look around and consider how other people view you, your values, and how you express them, especially in times of crisis, say a great deal about your potential to lead. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.